At various points in life, you start to make some really critical choices. Some of you at school will be starting to make some really critical choices fairly on. Uh, you will find, like me, you cannot wait to lose geography. That goes. I couldn't wait to stop doing PE. That went. And as you go through life, there are things that you discover. I never, I, I never want to eat another tomato. I can't stand tomatoes. Please never present me with a tomato. I can't do it. I, I'm utterly uninterested in football. Um, Mark, our colleague here, is in despair of me. He can't have a conversation about football. He can't have a conversation about Eurovision, pop music of any kind. I, on the other hand, would happily talk to him about Mahler or Tolstoy or something, and he can't do that either. We're, we're all different, and we learn to navigate through making choices, which is fine and dandy, until it comes to reading the Bible. Because if we're not careful when we read the Bible, we choose which bits of the Bible we like and don't like, prefer and don't prefer, according to our preferences. So if you're sort of a, a cool, rational kind of person, you like the letters. If you like uh, poems and things, if you like songs, you'll love the Psalms. And if you've got a really strong imagination, you, maybe you love some of the great mythic poetry or Tolkien or things like that, you'll really love the book of Revelation. And equally, there are some bits that you will find turn you off. But we're not allowed as Christians to say, this bit of the Bible turns me on or turns me off. What we say is, the Bible is the Bible. And I am a rich person designed in God's image to have a brain that thinks, a heart that feels, with imagination that sees. I can think about stuff, I can be captivated by stuff, and it is good for me to be stretched. Now, why do I say all that? Because we're going to look at the book of Revelation tonight. Dave has given me two and a half chapters, which is mean. But that's okay, because he did the barbecue, so that was a fair price. So we're only going to do a bit of a sort of, um, like a, scone, uh, a stone skimming on a pond. We're going to uh, try to dance through chapters 17, 18, and the first half of chapter 19. But I kind of want to warn you in advance that some of this stuff is really quite strong. It, it's strong in imagery. And if we were uh, a weak and weedy broadcaster, we'd be saying, some of these images some viewers may find disturbing. I'm just kind of warning you in advance that that's the case, and we don't get to duck them as Christians. We take them on board. Um, there are some phrases, some ideas, where I, I got out my parallel Bible this week. I was trying to think, is there a, a, a nicer way to put this? No, there isn't. There are four or five other English words that mean roughly the same thing as some of these things. Uh, we get to lump it. We get to think about it. We get to be maybe pushed outside our nice part of N10 into a rather more difficult, dangerous part of the world. So let's have a think about Revelation 17 to 19, but having waggled on the tea a little bit, let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about your word tonight, please would you help us to have minds and imaginations that are full of you and your glory and your standards. Please would you help us to see the world through your eyes, see ourselves through your eyes, and see our culture through your eyes and decide how we should react. Amen. 
Now, we're not going to read it all, as I said, but let's start at the beginning of chapter 17. We're on page 1245 of the book of Revelation, and if you've been doing the reading plan, I think you're up to here. Chapter 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. <laughs> yeah. And the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will yet come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with, them will be, with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose, buying to green to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Maybe I should have organized the barbecue after all and let Dave do this. Now look, obviously we're dealing with some kind of code or something to understand, a, a, a mystery. We've got Babylon, haven't we? The city Babylon, Babylon the Great. Now, 
Let's get our heads around this. Babylon had been an amazing city. It had been the largest city in the world for centuries. But by the time that John wrote, it had been an absolute ruin for maybe 250 years. So there's no sense in which when he describes Babylon, he's talking about a current city. It's a code, a cipher, if you like, for something else, someone else, somewhere else. So what cracks the code? Now, some people have suggested a one-to-one link with Rome, the major city of John's day. If you look at chapter 17, verse 9, you may have picked this uh, little reference up. Uh, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. And people have said Rome famously is a city of seven hills. Maybe that's a reference to Rome. The difficulty is that along with this, you've got a mention of ten kings. And there's no way you can line up the number ten with the Roman emperors. It it just doesn't work. There's all sorts of schemes, but, but none has persuaded everybody because it's a really, really obvious thing. I think, as always, the best book to decode the Bible is the Bible itself. We have learned, for example, that the number seven in Revelation always means completion. So this is something to its uttermost extent. This is something as high as it could be. And hills, particularly in the Old Testament, hills are a place of rebellion. The high places, the place of idolatry, where the false gods were worshipped. So maybe, rather than being a particular city, it's saying this is the ultimate idolatry, the ultimate worship of false gods. This is where Babylon is placed. It may be a description of a particular point in human history at the end times, and at which point I assume that we won't need some kind of code because it will be crystal clear. Various times people have tried to make this fit. I remember when I was... uh, uh, when I was younger, there was a great debate, some of you who are older remember this, a great debate about Britain going into the EU, or the EEC. And it was called the Treaty of Rome. And some people got terribly excited. Oh, the Treaty of Rome. And there are ten countries in the Treaty of Rome. Maybe that's what... Revel- well, it turned out not to be the case at all, didn't it? Because there are now loads and loads of places in the Treaty of Rome, and we're not one of them. For myself, I think it's this. It's a description of the spiritual forces that are always at work, which will reach a climax at some point in the future. It will be the end times and it will be clear. But even if the return of Jesus is 5,000, 50,000 years into the future, the underlying principles are still true. They still work. They're always here. Babylon is a description of the world city against God. Second thing you notice, I expect, is that this is a very strong description. It's startling and it's dramatic. And the danger, I think, is that we start imagining it ourselves, like like some really careful bits of CGI. 
uh, as though it's from a, a Marvel movie or something. But I don't think we're supposed to use our imagination so much as try to think through what it means. And above all, this is not a description of how Babylon and the woman who, who, who rules it, it's not a description of how it looks to us. It's a description of how it looks to God. And God's showing us his view of human history and the forces that shape our culture. Think of it like this. You and I have got reasonable eyesight. We can see reasonable colors. And by and large, we see the same colors. The, the, the spectrum that we see is recognizable, isn't it? Red, red, orange, yellow, green. Richard of York gave battle in vain. It's that, it's that lot. Um, red through to violet. We see those. But we also know that either end beyond that, there is a huge invisible spectrum which we can't see. We can analyze some things through looking at the eyes of insects or birds, and we know that they see a little bit more than us. But way beyond even their eyesight is another massive spectrum of all sorts of things which we can't see. Infrared, ultraviolet. <laughs> and it's as though what, um, what John is doing here is in showing us Babylon and the woman who rules Babylon, he's kind of saying, let me show you the full spectrum, not just the little bit that you can see with your human eyes, but let me show you infrared, ultraviolet stuff that you would never see with the human eye. But this is how God sees things rather than how we see things. Third thing I want to say before we, before we dive in is that um, some of you might be finding this a little bit offensive. It's a woman who's been involved in the sex, well, actively involved in the sex trade. And she is cheerfully immoral. Now let's stand back a second. It is certainly true that Babylon, this rebellious city, is personified as a woman at its most wicked. But it's also true in a couple of chapters' time that the beloved city, Jerusalem, is also described as a woman, the bride of Christ. The worst and the best have female descriptions. More than that, the worst of humankind is also described in male characteristics, the Antichrist. And the best is described with male characteristics, Christ himself. So the worst and the most depraved both have male and female descriptions, and the best and most beloved have both male and female descriptions. So we don't just light on one and say we find this offensive. We light on it and say this is one of four different pictures. Let's understand what's going on here. The worst come together in debased unity. The most glorious come together in perfect unity in the marriage in heaven. So, let's have a look at verses 1 to 6. I'm just going to grab a, my mug, sorry. I've <clears throat> been speaking a lot today. So, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 17 shows us 
the description of the woman. Let me, let me read it to you again so we get a bit of a flavor, underline it for you. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her the kings, have com the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And the name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So what makes up this description? Well, there is wealth and there is luxury to the point of decadence. We've got colors here, purple and scarlet and gold and jewels. These are, these are top-end things. This is the kind of stuff that you get in the best duty-free shops. Okay, This is top-end luxury. There is violence and there is power which leads to the death of God's people, Christians like you and me. There is rage against God which leads to blasphemy. That means Babylon, the city, the woman herself, they worship her herself, not, not God himself. There is sexual immorality as a foundation stone of this society. And it leads to what John sees with disgust. Look with me, he, he talks about abominable things and filth. Now that would, we know from historians of the time, that would fit first century Rome. But here's the key, it fits every society to some degree. It fits 21st century London. I mean, think back to when you did history at school. This is a pretty good description of the decadence of the French kings. But it's also a pretty good description of the violence of the French Revolution. It's a pretty good description of the decadence of the Russian Tsars. But it's also a pretty good description of the violence of the Soviets. It describes the decadence of free market capitalism. And it describes the decadence of forced economy socialism. It describes, if, you, if you've got a history brain, you can work that this fits 17th century Italy, it fits 18th century France, it fits 19th century Britain, it fits 20th century Germany, it fits 21st century China. And that's not a list with a full stop at the end. Okay? It just goes on and on and on. P up to the left, to the right, democracies, tyrannies, this was always true to some degree, and sometimes frequently true to a full degree. That's what happens when you see human society from God's perspective, with all the spectrum. It looks like this. But it is so hard for us to see. Why? Verse 6. The woman was drunk with the bloods of God's holy people the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Or verse 8. 
I beg your pardon. Um, 17 verse 2, that's the one I want. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. There's something about this which makes us drunk. So we cannot see clearly, we cannot value properly, we, we, don't, under, we don't respond rationally, we're out of control. And therefore we accept her values and worship with her. So is this just gloom, blasphemy, and decadence? No. And it's not distrust, money, sex, and power, because those are good gifts of God. And it's certainly not to get some kind of weird kick from the thrill of looking at something wicked. What John wants us to see is the fascination uh, of the... Um, yeah, the fascination of, of this, but also how we lose the fascination. How we become sober again. How we become disenchanted. Look at verse 8 with me. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. Once was, now is not, yet will come. Does that remind you of something? It echoes, it deliberately echoes the life story of Jesus, doesn't it? Except that it ends where Jesus' life story continues. Look again, it happens again in verse 11. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and he's going to his destruction. We get a pattern which apes Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It deliberately echoes it. But whereas for Jesus, his life, death, resurrection leads to glory and eternal life, for the beast, this pattern leads to destruction and it will Fail. Verse 14. They, the kings of the earth, will wage war against the Lamb. That's Jesus. But the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. This, this Babylonian glittering piece of decadence will fail. Why? Because God will want it to fail and make it fail. And it will make war against itself. Verse 16. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. So the, the bad guys hate the bad guys. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beasts their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The forces of world evil cannot defeat God, but the forces of world evil can defeat each other, and God will let them do so. Chapter 18, verse 1. We haven't gone into chapter 18 yet. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority. 
and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. So, Christian, what are we supposed to do? If this is a city in rebellion, a world city, a culture in rebellion, what are we supposed to do? Well, this is the turning point in our chapter, because what John now shows us is the action we need to take, the step. Look with me in 18.4. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out from her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts. I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Christians, what are we to do? Come out from her. Leave. Christians must take deliberate care not to live in Babylon, not to worship like Babylon. Otherwise, as John says, if we share in Babylon's sin, we shall share in Babylon's punishment. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it means this. Every Christian needs to understand the times they live in. And that's our job today. We need to watch for Babylon. We need to watch for its foot coming closer to us like the dinosaur in Jurassic Park. And we just need to refuse to take part. We need to be part of what some people call a Christian counterculture. To be a distinct disciple of the Lord Jesus in Babylon. Now, let me give you an example. I, I'm going to take myself as an example here, simply because I've got the microphone, okay? So you can come and take pot shots at me later. But here are various elements of my Christian worldview. If you talked to me about wealth and luxury, you would think I would be extremely left-wing. If you talked to me about consumption, and greed, you would think I was extremely green with the eco-damage that we're causing. But if you were to talk to me about marriage and sex, you would think I was extremely right-wing, quite traditional, very conservative. If you were to talk to me about slavery, you would think I was extremely, what's the word we use now, woke. We're going to come back to that. But if you were to talk to me about God in public life, you would think me embarrassingly out of step 
Remember if, we, if you remember back to when we had the Olympics in London, the opening ceremony was a deliberate attempt to present Britain as if Christianity was not part of our story at all. I felt really out of step at that point. If you talk to me about power and violence, you will think I'm very close to being a pacifist. If you talk to me about justice and the need for law, you would think I was incredibly judgmental. If you talk to me about the racial spectrum, you would think I was massively inclusive and multicultural. If you talk to me about the sexual spectrum, you will think that I'm heteronormative and exclusive and I'd get deplatformed. So am I some kind of mussy, mushy middle? Some sort of midpoint between everybody that's indecisive? No, 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 no. The Christian worldview is made up of really strong flavors. And it's consistent within itself. But it's inconsistent with Babylon, time and time and time again. The rebellious city is involved in civil war. The Christian worldview, which doesn't match it, is always consistent. Someone suggested that we need our own version of the BBC. Biblically balanced Christianity. And in Babylon, we are never at home. Now, our section finishes with two songs. Two songs. One of despair and one a chorus of praise. Let's think about the despair, first of all. Chapter 18, verses 9 to 24. When the kings of the earth who commit adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe to you, great city. Sorry, woe, woe to you, great city. You mighty city of Babylon, in one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every, of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors, and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. 
Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets. For God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. A song of, initially, a song of despair. Why? Because the people who lived in Babylon loved Babylon. The people who lived in Babylon liked the wealth, the, the decadence, the immorality. They spent, they consumed, they grew fat, they grew rich. I'm saying this in the past tense because that's how John's writing it, but you know he's writing it about every world city up to the end point. A whole world of trade comes under God's judgment because it is luxurious and pointless. And then did you miss at the very end point in verse 13, the end point of the list of wickedness of Babylon human beings sold as slaves. At the end of history, at the climax of history, the sin that ends the list for Babylon is the slave trade. Friends, if anyone ever says to you, the Bible supports slavery, would you bring them here? I mean, it's a big story. We've got lots to talk about. There's lots of Bible passages to think about. Uh, and there's loads of detail, of course. But take them here, would you? Because this is the clearest point where you see that the slave trade is characteristic of Babylon. The slave trade is characteristic of the beast. The slave trade is characteristic of blasphemy and rebellion. And it is doomed. Even the current slave trade, which is so enormous. I said there were two songs. The first one was one of despair. It gets repeated several times. The second one is one of praise. That also gets repeated several times. And the praise is of this. Chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, not woe, Hallelujah. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now I'm not going to go too far into the celebration. I'm going to leave that for Dave next week and he can, he can enjoy the celebration side of this. But I want you to notice this. The praise, the praise that is given to God is because he has judged 
and punished his enemies, and in particular judged and punished those who've worshipped other gods and killed his people. And if you find that strange, here are, here are three thoughts to put into your head. The first is this. We live in a relatively safe part of the world. What would you think if you lived in a part of the world which is still alive today, where it is quite possible that you would be killed for being a Christian, or your parents would be killed for being a Christian, or your children would be killed, or your village would be burnt because you were Christians? Would you just sit there quietly and say, oh, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles? Or would you feel that this is deeply wrong and God needs to step in and God is right when he judges those who express violence against his people? Second thought. Remember I said that this is to do with the spectrum. When we see as God sees, with all the infrared and all the ultraviolet, when we see as God sees, then we will understand why we should praise him as it says here. It may be that we're just limit, we, because we're seeing things with a limited spectrum, we puzzle over how we can praise God because of his judgment. But as an old hymn says, when we see, he, when we see thee as thou art, we'll praise thee as thou art, as we ought. In other words, when you see God as he really is, with all the spectrum of colors, you will be able clearly and with a clear conscience to praise him for his judgments. Because it is a good thing for him to be doing. And the third thought is this, and it's a warning. Do you need to be aware that you might be falling in love with living in Babylon? Because London is Babylon too. So is Paris, so is Berlin. But London is Babylon too. And the same forces are at work. The decadent use of money, the decadent use of power, the decadent use of sex. And if you cheer and worship when Babylon cheers and worships, then you will share her ruin as surely as you share her sin. But if you step aside and you say, no, I will not worship with Babylon, I will worship the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, I will not practice as Babylon practices. I will live in loving obedience to the Lord Jesus. I will not be intoxicated, be drunk with the wine of Babylon. I will be sober and follow the Lord Jesus with a clear mind and a clear conscience. And that is the evidence that your life is in the Lamb's book of life and you will belong. In every culture, at every time, in every place, we must be distinct. At some point in this, uh, the future, this will all become shiningly, crashingly, climactically true in one place and time. Until then, it is always true everywhere. And we come out from Babylon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are strong truths, but sometimes we need strong truths to wake us up. If we've grown sleepy, if we've become happy about living in Babylon, loving what Babylon loves, 
treasuring what Babylon treasures, worshipping what Babylon worships. Please would you give us a heart which longs to come out from Babylon and live in a way that pleases you and worships you alone. Amen. Thank you.